Welcome to Hang Your Hat, ideas that are close to home. This is episode two. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. In this week's episode, I'll talk about the history of Christmas cards, consumable clutter-free gifts, mailing addresses, and I have a few fun finds that are perfect for this holiday season. So grab a cup of cocoa, snuggle up to a blazing fire, and settle in for another episode of Hang Your Hat. It was a dark and stormy night in the winter of 1843. Henry Cole trudged home after a long day of record-keeping and postal reform. After struggling to open the door, which felt as though there were a heavy weight upon it, Cole was greeted by a towering pile of letters. So many letters that it seemed that the postman must have spent hours doing nothing but slotting them through his door. Upon seeing them, Cole felt like a stone had dropped in his stomach. He had to respond to them all. Not doing so would have been the height of rudeness. But he simply didn't have the time. He had already spent most of the previous night getting through yesterday's correspondence, and he was exhausted. Suddenly, an idea occurred to him, a brilliant idea that would solve his problem, an idea that would let him respond to all of the letters, satisfying his social obligations while involving the least time and effort possible. He called up his friend, artist J.C. Horsley, and together they set about making the first Christmas card. Okay, it may not have gone exactly like that. I couldn't find any reference to the exact moment that Henry Cole had the Christmas card brainwave, but it is true that Cole was a very busy and popular man. He would later become Sir Henry Cole and found the Victoria and Albert Museum. And it was also true that he got a lot of Christmas correspondence, and that not responding to correspondence in Victorian England would have been considered impolite. Cole and his friend Horsley are also widely credited as the creators of the first commercial Christmas card. Cole's Christmas card was a triptych, uh, like a picture divided into three parts. It showed a family in the middle doing some holiday celebrating, raising a glass. And on either side of the family were pictures of people helping the poor. The center of the card also featured the message, A Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to You. On the bottom right of the picture was the word two, with a blank spot after it. Cole printed out 1,000 of these pictures on roughly 3 by 5 cardstock, filled in the names of his correspondents in the blank spot, and mailed them out. Immediately, there was controversy. Just like the green Starbucks holiday cup, some people got up in arms about the card because they thought it encouraged underage drinking. There was a big temperance movement in England at the time, and the card depicted a family, including some children, raising glasses of a red liquid that looked like it could be wine. However, the criticism didn't keep people from recognizing a good thing when they saw it, and within a few years, several prominent Victorians were sending out Christmas cards. The Christmas card probably took off because it was around the same time that the card was invented that ordinary people could send post for the first time. The Penny Post, public postal deliveries, started in 1840. Sir Henry Cole was actually one of the people that helped to introduce it. Before that, only very rich people could afford to send anything in the post. The new post office was able to offer a penny stamp because 
new railways were being built, and these could carry much more posts than the horse and carriages that had been used before. Also, trains could go a lot faster. Cards became even more popular in the UK in 1870, when they could be posted in an unsealed envelope for a half penny, half the price of an ordinary letter, meaning that even more people could afford to send a card. Christmas cards appeared in the U.S. in the late 1840s, but were very expensive, and most people couldn't afford them. But in 1875, Louis Prang, a printer who was originally from Germany, but who had also worked on early cards in the U.K., started mass-producing cards in the U.S., so more people could afford to buy them. Mr. Prang's first cards featured flowers, plants, and children. By the 1880s, the practice of sending Christmas cards was a central part of the holiday season in America as well. In the post-bellum industrial period in America, families spread out. Many people left the farm to live in the city, and Christmas cards became a convenient way to nurture extended family relationships. This is called kinship work, and it's usually done by women, even today. Yale anthropologist Michaela D. Leonardo has actually explored the kinship work involved in holiday cards. Her work was published in the journal Signs as the female world of cards and holidays, women, families, and the work of kinship. A link to her article will be available in the show notes. Even though Christmas cards grew in popularity, their quality didn't necessarily do the same. Many Christmas card manufacturers used worn-out, corny, overly sentimental, or just plain bad art. In 1885, both the Decorator and Furniture magazine and the Art Amateur magazine published articles criticizing the industry for the awful images and poor production values. Industry critics predicted that the American public would soon tire of Christmas cards. But by the early 1900s, improvements in image printing technology allowed greeting cards to become more popular than ever before. The industry was even praised in 1900 by the British Medical Journal for a new series of Christmas cards with Platino panel reproductions that resembled photographic prints. And as technology improved, profit margins improved, and competition grew. In 1915, the Hall Brothers Company later Hallmark, or one of the most successful card companies in the U.S., began printing cards in their Kansas City facilities. They soon began producing 4 by 6 inch folding cards and envelopes, which is still more or less the industry standard. The reason for switching to this new standard was that people did not have enough room to write all that they wanted to say on a postcard-style card which is ironically in direct opposition to the original purpose of the Christmas card, which was avoiding writing long messages and saving time. By the late 1920s, American greeting card companies employed more than 5,000 workers. Each year's new designs were produced by well-paid artists, and the designs were closely guarded secrets until the cards were released to prevent knockoffs. Advertising tactics grew more aggressive as the industry became more lucrative. Card companies attempted to make it look like the custom of giving cards at Christmas was an age-old tradition, and not participating in it meant not truly participating in the holiday. In 1928, Samuel Grafton of the North American Review, as well as other critics of the card industry, began complaining about the commercialization of the holidays, but their protests didn't stop consumers from buying cards. 
The 1930s through the 1950s saw a further increase in the popularity of Christmas cards and a shift to themes that were more seasonally appropriate than the generic scenes that had been prevalent in the U.S. market previously. Famous artists like Norman Rockwell and Salvador Dali designed cards with angels and Santas on them. The U.S. Postal Service even got in on the action, releasing the first Christmas postage stamp in 1962. Charities have also been using Christmas cards to raise money for a long time. It started in Denmark in the early 1900s. A postman thought that charities could sell seals or stickers to stick the card envelopes closed and make them prettier. His idea was a big success. Over 4 million were sold in the first year, and the practice soon spread around the world. By the 1940s, in the U.S., many charities had started selling the cards themselves, often with the charity's logo on the card. One of the most famous of these is the UNICEF holiday card, which raises money for at-risk children. Their first Christmas card was produced in 1949, and it featured the art of a seven-year-old Czechoslovakian girl whose village had received food and medicine from UNICEF after World War II. At the end of the 20th century, the task of sending holiday cards still fell mostly to women, many of whom did not have the time or desire to send out holiday cards. However, many still felt guilty about not keeping in touch with the extended family over the holidays. So the greeting card industries adapted. They made cards that could be customized with names, photographs, and news updates, saving precious time that might otherwise have been spent writing the sender's name for the hundredth time. Home printers could even save senders from the drudgery of manually addressing an envelope, which I think harkens back to the spirit of Henry Cole's time-saving first Christmas card. Now sending Christmas cards is easier than ever. They can be sent electronically, and the sender never even needs to walk to the mailbox. But the need to send them is dwindling. Now we can easily stay in touch with our extended families through social media or email, and cards are no longer needed to maintain those social ties. Whether or not the greeting card industry will endure through the age of social media remains to to be seen, but it is clear if they want to do so, they will again need to adapt to keep up with the times. Some companies are doing so. For example, I currently have an app called Just Wink on my phone that will send a customized greeting card via text to anyone with text capabilities, and often for free. It will be interesting to see how the card industry changes, and if it survives over the next 10 to 20 years. When I find out what happens, I'll send you a postcard. As I've grown older, I've come to appreciate the comforts of an uncluttered house. My love for clutter-free consumable gifts has likewise increased. Consumable gifts are those that are meant to be used up rather than ones that are meant to endure and hang around your house forever. I love receiving them because I feel no obligation to keep the gift forever. It is, after all, supposed to be used up. And I love giving them because there's less pressure to find something the recipient will want to keep forever. My assumption, if I don't see the gift in the gifty's house later, is that it has been used, which is exactly what I want to occur, and I'm glad to see that they no longer have it. Consumable gifts also tend to be less expensive and easier to DIY than their enduring counterparts, both which make them a great choice for the holiday season. And they don't contribute to household clutter, which is good for the rest of the year. Today I have a special guest with me to discuss consumable gifts, my partner John, who you might know as Firebeard if you read the Jerukin Crafts blog. 
I asked him to come on to give an additional perspective on consumable gifts. Hi, John. Hey, how are you doing? I'm doing very good. Good. So I asked you to come on with some ideas for consumable gift ideas, bringing a bit of the male perspective into the talk today. Right. Yes. Um, So I had a couple of ideas I wanted to get started with. Um, One of the big consumable gift categories that seems to come up every year is bath, beauty, and grooming products. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So this year I actually created some of these for our own family. I made a lot of DIY soaps that were, you know, would have been very high-end and expensive if we had got them in like a specialty store, like Lush or something like that. Right. Um, but the DIY part made them much more affordable so I could give them to our very large extended family. Exactly. Yes. And they smelled wonderful too. Yeah. Uh, another, some, some more from my list are salt scrubs, which are actually really easy to do as well. DIY, um, bath salts, fizzy bath bombs, which are wonderful to get from places like, again, Lush, but you can also make them yourself. They're actually not as hard to make as you might think. Um, another good one is solid perfume, which I especially like DIY because you can use things like essential oils, which are not often present in like non-DIY perfumes. And since I'm really sensitive to scent, the essential oils usually don't give me a headache like some of the other perfumes might. Yeah, they're not overly intensive. Right. Right. Did you have any ideas for the men on the list? Absolutely. Um, there is actually a, kind of a growing market uh, for men's uh, personal care products. Uh, a lot of it, if you notice, uh, have to do around men that have beards. There are, it seems like everybody and their brother is making a beard shampoo or a beard wax or a beard pomade. So if you know a guy who has facial hair, um, Maybe try one of these if you know of a brand that they like or just want to give them something that you think they could use. Uh, there's a lot out there. And from what I can tell, the DIY market for making uh, men's facial hair care products is uh, pretty diverse as well. So maybe check out a recipe. Maybe not quite as uh, diverse as some of the DIY ideas for women, but mm-hmm. they're definitely getting more popular. Right, right. It, like I said, it's kind of a growing market. It's something that, you know, in the last few years, beards have become very popular. I have one myself uh, and have had for the last 10 or so years. But yeah, in men's uh, personal care products, uh, like you could even say a shampoo, uh, maybe something like uh, Jorkin had talked about making for extended family, um, mixing up a shampoo with just the right kind of scents, maybe something that on that special guy you want him to smell like. <laughs> it's a really good way to encourage it because a lot of guys will just, you know, I'm not saying that we're lazy, but we're more inclined to use soap that we have available rather than have to go out and get soap. So it's a good thing to do. Um, and Or if you have a guy that you really just want them to not use any sort of Axe body spray, maybe some <laughs> kind of, uh, oh, just, you know, a cologne, which is not it, maybe not such a DIY thing, but is a consumable and would be a worthwhile gift for them. Um, or a guy that you don't really know how to tell them that they have a problem with dandruff. Um, a lot of high-end dandruff shampoos out there. I'm sure there's recipes where you can make your own as well. Or uh, someone who's uh, particularly athletic, uh, enjoys uh, physical pursuits, maybe a solve. You can mix up uh, using some coconut oil, shea butter, uh, and the like. So there's there's a lot of different choices out there, but uh, something where don't necessarily write it off if it's a good idea for 
a lady, it might be a pretty good idea for a man as well. Uh, for these kind of gifts particularly, I really like buying things that are a bit more fancy than a person might get for themselves normally. Mm-hmm. You know, don't go out and buy the Dove Bar. Go out and buy the really nice bar of soap. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And that's, you know, and something that's also, I uh, feel like mentioning, I know that Jorg and I have used these for years, but uh, Tom's uh, Salt Stone, which is a, um, it's a, I believe it's a Tibetan salt stone. You can get a lot of... Uh, um, I think Whole Foods carries them. A lot of natural um, food stores. Natural food stores supply them, but it's a deodorant stone that is unscented, which, as Jerkin will tell you, uh, goes a long way in her book. It doesn't have any sort of odor one way or the other, so there's nothing to not like. But they last forever in a day, and I say forever, meaning about six months or so. Which for deodorant for anyone, I think, is a pretty long lifespan. And, I agree. Uh, yeah, that's a <clears throat> not. A gift that keeps on giving, but uh, one that would be you know, well-received by anyone who doesn't want to have to replace their deodorant constantly. Yeah, these, gifts, these kinds of gifts can also be pretty good for kids. Um, I like lip glosses in place of maybe um, lipstick for a girl that's getting into the tween years. Uh, bath bubbles or bathtub crayons are really fun for younger kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and even nail polish, which... I don't know everybody likes nail polish, but it's not permanent. Right. It can always come off. Did you have any others for this category? No, no, that was pretty much it for that. All right, let's move on to food and treats. I know this is one that you were pretty um, pretty excited about it when I mentioned it. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Just because food and treats, uh, if you have any area that's really unisex, it's food and treats. Um, just because you really all you have to think about is what does this person I'm buying for like to eat? Male or female, it's, you know, food tastes are good. Uh, candy, chocolates, cookies, everybody loves those. I, I actually feel like this particular category might be um, a little more fraught with some dangers. Not everybody is going to want additional treats around the holidays well, when they're right. already eating a lot of treats. Right. So some people might not appreciate this kind of gift quite as much at this time mm-hmm. of year. Um, and also the people have food intolerances or fruit allergies, you have to right. be really careful. Oh, absolutely. And you wouldn't want to, you know, make peanut brittle for someone that has a terrible peanut allergy. That would just be cruel, especially if they actually like peanut brittle. Um, <laughs> but it's something that is uh, just kind of a one-size-fits-all sort of deal, and it shouldn't be overlooked for that. Um, so I have a few on my list that I'd like to share. Um, I really enjoy some of the more... Um, ingredient-based gifts like this. Um, Flavored sugars, like you can make up a vanilla sugar. Um, Actual vanilla itself, you can actually make vanilla from vanilla beans and usually a harder liquor liquor like vodka. Uh, You can also make simple syrups or flavored simple syrups for drinks like coffee and cocoa. Um, Infused liquors or vinegars are also really good. Um, my favorite, one of my favorite ideas right now is actually a drink kit where you get all of the things together that you might need for like a really special fancy cocktail or mm-hmm. a mixed drink. Right, right. Um, another good one for non-drinkers is really nice olive oil. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. Um, although a bottle of wine never goes amiss. Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, even if they don't drink, they can use it for cooking. Yes, 
Yeah. Kind of the same for a bag of uh, particularly nice coffee. Maybe either by a local roaster or an importer or one that they've had their eye on that is a special treat for them. I agree. Um, honey is the same thing. Um, you can find a really a lot of really nice high-end honeys that somebody might not normally get for themselves because they're really just too expensive. Right, exactly. Um, but it's great for a nice little treat. Mm-hmm. Um, another one for ingredients is things like flavored salts or spice rubs or dip mixes, uh, especially if you have a, your own personal recipe, which everyone is usually asking you for. Um, that's a great one to give as a little gift. Um, another good one for kids or things like special snacks they don't normally get. Um, like I know our kids love the butterscotch beer, which is non-alcoholic, by the way, um, which is modeled after butterbeer from Harry Potter. Mm-hmm. They don't normally get really sugary sodas, but when they do get them, they love them. And that's a really great little stocking stuffer type gift for the kids. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, hot chocolate mix is also a good one, and that one is good for everybody. If you make an addition to the hot chocolate mix, some homemade marshmallows, it is a absolutely great gift. Um, really good one for office mates as well because it's not super expensive, but it's really thoughtful. Absolutely, and if you give them just a little single-serve bag with the marshmallows already in it, where all they have to do is fill a you know coffee mug with water, microwave that for however long, put in the bag, they have one cup right there. That's about as easy as it gets. Did you have any to add from your list? Uh, Not for the food and treats and ingredients. Wow, I got everything. You did. Yeah. Okay. Um, Services. Mm -hmm. Do you want to start out before Uh, I take everything? Oh, sure. Well, I'll get a couple in, at least up front, right? Um, If you're looking for uh, services you could purchase for the... uh, for the guy, and again, this kind of relates back to the personal grooming products and what I said earlier that a lot of uh, you know massages, facials, mani pedis, uh, even especially with men, high-end barber shops. These are all good places to get gift certificates too, because male grooming, not just with beards, but in general, is something that's kind of not viewed as odd or off. It's you know perfectly natural and actually really encouraged for men to take care of themselves. Uh, physically, health-wise, mentally, and uh, having all these services performed, a nice full-body massage, manicure, pedicure, a lot of guys overlook, and there's not really as much stigma as there used to be attached to having that done if you're a manly man, as there were was, you know, not too long ago. So gift certificates, those would be right up most guys' alley. I'd add facials to that list as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yes, most definitely. And uh, just, you know, kind of a, I guess this would be more of a stereotypical guy gift, but maybe a a gift certificate where they could go get the oil in their car changed, whether it be at a dealership or one of the local providers. Uh, Just very, very convenient. If someone's busy with work, if they are, you know, constantly running around, it'll be a good reminder and an incentive for them to take care of the vehicle. So, Uh, I'd like to add to that uh, babysitting, Hmm. uh, especially for people with young kids that don't get out a lot. If you want to offer your own services or the services of a babysitter that you know really well and trust um, that you want to pay for a night for your special friends or family. That's a great gift, especially for new parents. Um, And house cleaning. Um, This one's a really good one, again, for new parents or family members that maybe are getting a little older and really can't get down on their knees and scrub any longer. Right. 
or if they're just busy with work, with uh, other pursuits and endeavors, it's a real time saver. And coming home to a clean house, as we all know, is a very, very nice thing, which not all of us have the time to you know, constantly keep one in perfect shape. So, And it doesn't have to be a you know monthly service that you buy. It can be one really good house cleaning would be a wonderful gift for a yeah. lot of families. Yeah, as needed. Um, subscriptions. Mm-hmm. So, of course, Netflix, Hulu, and Amazon Prime are subscriptions that I think I think everyone would appreciate getting, mm-hmm. um, you know, a few months or even a year paid for. Some of these subscriptions really aren't terribly expensive. Right. Um, Prime, for example, is about seventy dollars. I think. Well, last I checked, around there. Yeah. And it does a lot more than just these streaming services. It really can give a family. Um, you know, the free shipping, um, also the kind of Amazon grocery shopping that often has pretty good discounts. Amazon Amazon, pantry. Right. right. Um, so that one's a pretty good one. It's not a huge cost for the year, but it really has a lot involved in it. Right. Absolutely. And, um, on the guy side of things, uh, and this is, I I feel very sexist in saying this because I know there are, uh, I won't say a silent majority, but a lot of female gamers out there, but if the guy that you're buying for is a gamer and you know what kind of system platform he's on, whether it be uh, Xbox One or PS4 uh, or even Wii U, a lot of the times those platforms have uh, premium services that can be purchased on a yearly, uh, quarterly, or bi-yearly basis, and uh, they unlock a lot of uh, content for the gamer that you're buying it for, whether it be additional online storage, access to uh, deluxe downloadable content for their games, or just uh, you know even games that they can download and play, uh, entire games, not just previews. So uh, some kind of premium services that you could purchase for them for their gaming system would be an excellent idea as a subscription. Um, this one can be a little bit of a hot button, but I think if you approach it right, it can be a great gift, and that's a gym membership. Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, especially as the new year comes around, a lot of people are... Wanting to get back in shape, getting on that New Year's resolution, and a gym membership can really help out with that. But you do have to be careful how you approach it. You don't want to imply that a person needs the gym membership. Right. You don't want to give them a bunch of candy like we were talking about earlier and then tell them to go to the gym. That's just that's mean. mean. Yes. Yeah. It is. Um, There also are some pretty cool sort of alternative gyms that you could try, like a climbing gym Mm -hmm. that doesn't necessarily have the same kind of stigma as a regular gym as far as the, you know, needing to go to a gym aspect. Absolutely. Right. Right. Non-traditional ones. We have a lot of CrossFit gyms that have come up in the last couple of years, which is a a very non-traditional workout, uh, so to speak. Not a lot of, you know, they do use weights, but they also use uh, things like tractor tires, um, ropes flung over the the joists inside the facility, wherever it is. A lot of running, calisthenics, plyometrics. Um, so there's there's a ton of options out there, and it might be something that you know the person you're getting it for has just been waiting. It's been on their list. It's been on their radar. They just haven't done it for themselves, and you can give them a nudge in that good direction. Online magazines and newspapers are also great. Um, I really love Audible, and I love my Audible subscription. Um, I think most people who enjoy reading and don't have a lot of time to do it would really enjoy an Audible subscription as well. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Uh, another good one is annual passes to so things like state parks or national parks or beaches or other 
um, private museums or things like that mm. that uh, people like to go to pretty often. Um, I know that we really enjoy being able to go to the state park that's near our house as often as possible in the summertime. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So gift cards. I know you had a lot of ideas about gift cards. Yeah, a lot of uh, just kind of gift cards have become, in the little time that I've been paying attention to them, uh, pretty ubiquitous. I mean, really, whatever the person that you are buying for, if they have something that they're interested in, chances are you can find a gift card to go towards whatever that interest is. Uh, there are even gift cards for eBay, so bidding on items online. It's just you have a set amount and you can use that. Uh, but literally any major retailer has gift cards available, and most uh, web services, web shops uh, have gift certificates that you can purchase digitally to have them just emailed so you don't even have the little plastic card to lose that way. So, But generally gift cards are, a lot of people see them as kind of maybe a cop-out, like, oh, you didn't know to give me anything in particular, so you just got me a card. I never look at them like that. It's something that you're giving that person to kind of go towards something you know that they will like. And if you genuinely don't know what specifically they want, it's a safe bet. It could also be good if the item that you know they want is, is too expensive for you, but you want to contribute toward it. Yeah, chip in a little bit. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. Some, I, some gift cards that I really like are things like iTunes gift cards. Um, you know, you do have to make sure that whoever you're buying for does have an Apple product, or that would be silly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, people's favorite stores are always a good bet. Right. But yeah. also things like grocery store or gas cards, which seem like a strange idea for a Christmas present. I think they're a really good idea for college students or recent graduates from college because they may actually need those grocery cards or gas gift cards. Oh, yeah. yeah. Getting the you know fuel for the body and fuel for the car to get to the interviews is an important thing. And it's just, again, kind of one of those gifts that's so sensible it might almost be... Uh, like thinking that it's like, a, oh, it's too pedestrian, it's too, it's not special enough. You know, having a full stomach and having a full tank is a very special feeling to me. I enjoy it, <laughs> and uh, I would gladly accept either of those. They're just, they're so useful. Uh, I also like the idea of giving someone a gift card for something that they normally wouldn't buy themselves or would feel like it was a bit of a splurge. Um, somebody who's really trying to cut back on their spending might really enjoy a gift card to their favorite coffee shop mm-hmm. absolutely, or a gift card to a photographer so that they can get some really lovely family photos. Mm-hmm. Um, and for kids, I think a great gift card is one to the bookstore so they can pick out a book they really love. Absolutely. And it kind of introduces the concept of, you know, you have a certain amount of money that you can spend. And if you spend less than that, you have some left over and you can put that towards something else. It's a, a good primer for uh, financial matters for them. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, entertainment. Uh, you, you kind of touched on this already, but uh, iTunes, Amazon, Hulu, a lot of the time, what I've just in my experience, what I found is that some people will favor one service over the other, whether it's Amazon Prime streaming, uh, Hulu, or Netflix. And if you know they use one of those services, maybe think about getting them a you know, subscription to one of the other services. A lot of the time, Hulu has programs that Netflix doesn't. A lot of the time, Amazon has programs that neither Netflix or Hulu have. So 
you can you know possibly open up a few more avenues of entertainment to them by just getting them a subscription to a service that might not otherwise be thought of as just redundant. Some of them have proprietary content now as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, they may not be able to see some of the shows that you're dying to tell them about mm-hmm. if they don't get onto this other service as well, which they might not necessarily want to pay for themselves. Right. So if you want to talk to them about the last five episodes of that new show you're watching, well, give them an avenue where they can watch it too. Um, I actually like the idea of giving people tickets to things like movies, amusement parks, museums, sporting events. Mm-hmm. It's not something you normally do, but a lot of people do love it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, also, concerts are plays that are coming to town. Concerts are super expensive now. They've gotten a lot more in the last few years. Yeah. 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 Um, and for kids... I, in our hometown, there is a place that does really fancy tea parties, mm-hmm. and I think that would be a great for a little girl or boy who really enjoys tea parties. Oh, absolutely. Dressing up to the nines and not just hanging out around a cardboard box, but a very, very fancy setting. Yeah. A lot of fun. Okay. Uh, active pursuits. This is one that you actually brought up that I hadn't thought about before as a category. Right. And it's kind of an emergent category, and I would say this is something that naturally you might think of for guys, but I would encourage anyone who has you know women on their list that are of you know an active mindset to think about it too. But it's a company that um, I am a huge fan of. I really can't say enough good things about them. Uh, but GORUCK, uh, G-O-R-U-C-K, is a company that's built around building better Americans. It was founded by ex-Special Forces members. Uh, they make a lot of different products. They started out making backpacks and military-grade uh, luggage that could be used while rucking, which is a military term for running or moving while carrying a load on your back. And they design events, uh, Go Ruck Challenges, which come in uh, three different flavors, light, challenge, and tough, that last for varying amounts of time. But it builds uh, team building. It, it builds Basically, it's an avenue where you can be very physically active, but in a controlled environment where you're learning how to work with other people, not just communicating, but physically. You do all sorts of fun games like carrying telephone poles for a quarter mile or uh, doing flutter kicks in the surf at a beach. Uh, So it's it's a very varied uh, activity, but just something that I would recommend for anyone who has the uh, desire to do so. Yeah, it's not just men. There are actually women doing this, too, and Mm -hmm. some of them really enjoy it. Oh, absolutely. And they have go-ruck challenges that are women-specific, where they do, you know, things that I'm not... I'm not familiar with them in depth to talk about what they would do there, but you can check it all out on their website, which is uh, goruck.com, and I would really encourage you to take a look. They're great people. Um, I also thought just uh, kind of disposable things that are part of the sports you normally participate in. Mm -hmm. Um, Chalk, if you'd like to go climbing or go to the rock gym. Uh, dehydrated foods if you like to go camping or bike tubes if you're a cyclist yeah absolutely every cyclist should have at least one tube if they're heading out riding and a lot of people in in urban environments might be you know couriers might be messengers they might be students that aren't allowed to have cars in the first place so you could very well keep their day from turning into a bad day but just getting them a new tube so I actually had a couple of miscellaneous things, too, that didn't really fit into any of our categories. Um, some of the things I thought about were fireplace items like fire starters or matches. 
Um, candles are also a good one. Craft supplies for the crafter in your life. These are also great for kids. Things like washi tape or stickers or erasers, glue, pipe cleaners, and pom-poms. Um, personalized calendars are one that I've seen a lot more in recent years. And they're a great one, especially for um, parents and grandparents. Last on my list is one that is not a very traditional Christmas gift at all, but it's actually a great Christmas gift for families that maybe not able to save a lot themselves. And that's starting a 529 college savings plan or giving a, bo- a bond or a stock to a child. And that helps them get started on the right foot. Which might not have the, uh, the curb appeal, if you will, of a Hot Wheels set or a box of Legos or a Barbie dream house. But you think about it long term, that is a gift that will keep giving and will be something that will certainly help the recipient out later on, whatever the future might bring. So very thoughtful, just you know, maybe not quite as uh, arousing as other gifts might be. Well, that's it. Well, that's all I have. Did you have anything else? No, that pretty much covers it. Thank you for joining me. No, thank you for having me. If you are sending Christmas cards by mail this year, you know that before you can stick them in the mailbox, you have to address them. I have always taken for granted the fact that an accurately addressed piece of mail will reach its intended target in a timely manner. While that may be true in the U.S., Canada, and most of Europe, It turns out that it's not true for about 4 billion of the world's inhabitants. There are 135 countries in the world where addresses either don't exist or are inadequate. I found this out recently while listening to the podcast Surprisingly Awesome. They had an episode called Postal Addresses, which was surprisingly awesome. They discussed the many steps that are currently being taken to make sure that everyone has an address. If you haven't listened to it, I would definitely recommend it. Their show made me curious for the first time about my own mailing address and how mailing addresses in general came to be. They're actually a surprisingly new invention. Before literacy became widespread, houses and businesses were identified by signs. House signs are pieces of art that can be used to identify a location, sort of like a landmark. They have been around since ancient times. The oldest known sign is actually from 300 AD in Egypt and it's used to identify the houses of those that could interpret dreams. House signs are made of stone, wood, metal, or even plaster. They could be carved, painted, or molded, and they generally depicted easily identifiable objects like animals or food or heraldic shields. The sign of a business might show what the business was about, so a cobbler might have a shoe on its sign. Like landmarks, house signs were a good way to identify a place or navigate a city without street signs. You could, say, take a ride at the sign of the three squirrels, and the shop is at the sign of the golden apple at the end of the street. But signs had problems. People visiting a city probably were not familiar with the new city's signs. So take a ride at the three squirrels is pretty meaningless unless you know where the three squirrels is. This may not have been a problem when people rarely moved out of their medieval villages, but as industrialization grew and people moved from their hometowns into cities, it had to be a problem. Cities could also have multiples of the same signs. For example, in 18th century Vienna, 
There were six signs of the Golden Eagle in town and a further 23 in the suburbs. Try finding the right Golden Eagle. Signs which identified the building also often stayed the same or were added to even as the businesses occupying the building changed. For example, a coffin maker in London had as his sign three coffins and a sugar loaf. The coffins were the coffin maker's personal sign, but the sugar loaf represented the previous occupant, a grocer. Hanging signs were also annoying and dangerous. The huge signs creaked and groaned loudly in heavy winds and all through the night, and they were known to occasionally fall on the heads of passers-by. In 1718, a huge sign in Bride Street in London fell on four people killing them and taking a part of the storefront with it. Even with all these problems, the signs were used for hundreds of years. The thing that finally killed the signs in the 18th century was the increasing use of house numbers. Probably one of the first uses of house numbers was in the 15th century on Point Notre Dame in Paris and a block of low-rent tenements in Augsburg in 1519. But the house numbers here were not used to deliver mail. They established property rights. House numbering really started to pick up in Europe during the 18th century. Municipal services like policing and postal delivery became more common during this time, and house numbering became more necessary for these services to work properly. House numbering was also used for censuses, tax collection, and drafting people into the armed services. The invasion of Prussia into new territories also helped the growth of house numbers. In 1737, authorities were ordered to fix house numbers on the houses in little villages before the Prussian troops marched in. Presumably this was to keep track of which house each of the soldiers were staying in. The French Revolution led to the spread of house numbering in France because it made it much easier for the new government to collect taxes. France numbered their houses by district rather than street, which is similar to how houses were numbered in, v in Venice in the 12th century and how houses are still numbered in Japan and South Korea today. In these house numbering schemes, cities are divided into numbered zones, and the houses are often numbered in the order in which they were built which seems like it would make it navigating around a district really difficult. In Europe, most countries numbered houses by street, with odd and even numbers alternating on each side of the street. Many numbering schemes forgot to leave space for new construction, so buildings built after the street was numbered sometimes had odd designations, using fractions or decimals or letters. For example, the Camberwell Church Street Police Station in London was built after the rest of the street was numbered, and it was given the designation 22 and a half. Many American cities were designed by city planners rather than slowly evolving over time like most of the cities in Europe. American city planners designed cities on grid systems, which allowed for new forms of house numbering known as the block decimal system or the Philadelphia system. The idea is that every block would have 100 numbers to use on each street, odd numbers on one side and even numbers on the other. At each intersection, the number would increase by 100. They also left room in the numbering scheme for the addition of new construction. Some cities adopted a cardinal direction system too, where a central point would be designated as the zero point, and the house numbers would increase outward from there. 
Streets were given directional designations based on the relationship to the central point. So streets going north from the central point, we get the north designation. Streets going west, the west designation. You get the picture. Not all American cities were designed in a helpful grid pattern, however. The city of New Orleans is one of the older cities in the U.S. and one that is near and dear to my own heart because my sister lives there. It took the city of New Orleans about 100 years to get from their first attempts at street numbering to the modern system that they have today. It started in 1805 when Matthew Flannery was tasked with doing a door-to-door population census. He wasn't a local and didn't really understand how the city was laid out. He tried to impose a grid system on a city that was anything but grid-like, and it just didn't work. He made Orleans Street in the French Quarter the principal access, even though Canal Street was the main artery by 1810, and then he imposed a cardinal direction system from that midpoint. He numbered the existing houses sequentially, almost disregarding the possibility of future development, but then he overcompensated by doubling all of the house numbers. Then he forced everyone to pay him two and a half bits for a 10 house number plate. It was a mess and nobody used it. The city tried to fix things in 1931. They required every 20 feet of street space to have a number, even if it didn't have a house, with even and odd numbers consistently placed on either side of the street. The only other rule was that the house number had to be at least three inches high on an oval metal plate and hung above the door. Even though this system was a lot simpler than the old one, it never really caught on. In 1852, New Orleans went through some big changes, including splitting up the city into wards. During these changes, they took the opportunity to improve the house numbering system once again. This time, they kept the even and odd numbers on opposite sides of the street, with the numbers increasing as the houses got farther away from Canal Street or the river. However, the numbers were not evenly distributed, and the significance of a block was completely ignored. This is the system that was in place when the Postal Service came to town in the late 1800s. Mail delivery and forward-thinking progressives demanded change, and in 1893, L.W. Brown, the city engineer, took the lead. His team kept Canal Street and the river as the access point, and even a odd numbering system. And he got rid of everything else from the prior numbering systems. The new design, which was deployed in 1894, used the block decimal system, or Philadelphia system, which increased the house numbers by 100 every block away from the access point, which made it easy to tell where everything was in town based on the house number. The new system was so much better than the previous systems that it was quickly adopted throughout the city and inspired other cities to make the change to the Philadelphia system as well. Today, the Philadelphia system is still used in New Orleans, and as a non-resident, I can say that I appreciate the Philadelphia system every time I visit the city. Before I leave you, I wanted to let you know about some fun finds that are perfect for this holiday season. The first is something I read about online recently. It's called the Turtle, and it's a robotic garden weeder that was made by the inventors of the Roomba vacuum. I actually have a Roomba vacuum. I was given it last Christmas, and I love it. And when I found out that they're making a robotic weeder, I was so excited about it. The robot weeder is called the Turtle, and it's made by a company called Franklin Robotics. 
It's solar powered and waterproof, so you can just leave it in your garden and it does the weeding for you all the time. What it actually does is cut the weeds more like a um, trimmer rather than an actual pulling up like you would if you hand weeded. It'll cut down anything that's less than an inch tall. So if you have little sprouts growing in your garden, you'd have to protect them with a little cuff or something around the edges of them. Franklin Robotics is still developing the Turtle right now, so it's not quite ready for this holiday season. But I cannot wait to see if it's ready for next holiday season. I would love one. The next fun find is something we actually got completely by accident. On Black Friday, we were low some Christmas lights. Um, we were trying to upgrade to LEDs, and we saw some really good deals on Amazon, and we ordered them and got them a few days later and found out that we could not plug them into the wall at our house because they were solar-powered. I don't know if this is something that is old hat that everybody knows about already, but it was brand new to me. And since then, I've actually found them all over in lots of stores. But this is such a great idea. It saves you so much money year after year, obviously, on paying for having your lights lit all the time. And what I find even better about them is that I don't have a outlet on my front porch to plug Christmas lights in. So if we want to do Christmas lights, we have to string a giant power cord through the garage to the front porch. The solar-powered lights take away that problem altogether. So I think they're fantastic. I'm hoping to give you some more fun finds as they come up in the next couple of episodes. Maybe even another one in time for the next episode, which should come out before Christmas. So stay tuned. Well, that's it for this week. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review or subscribe. Hang Your Hat's available now on both iTunes and Stitcher. We'll be back in two weeks with our next episode, but in the meantime, you can get in touch at our website, hangyourhatpodcast.com, or you can email hangyourhatpodcast at gmail.com. I'd really love to know what you think about the show. Comments and questions are both welcome. And if you leave a voice message, you may even be featured in an upcoming episode. 